chapter seventeen of the ladies mile this is a librivox recording all librivox recordings are in the public domain for more information or to volunteer please visit LibriVox.org. the ladies mile by mary elizabeth braddon chapter seventeen poor philip there were other men besides lawrence o'boyneville who found it pleasant to pitch their tents and kindle their household fires within the limits of bloomsbury sigismund smythe the novelist believed in the neighbourhood of russell square as the most delightful spot on earth i had an overdose of the country when i was young and i'm not given to babble of green fields and pastures new said mr smythe whose quotations were apt to be more appropriate than correct people may talk as they like about the dullness of rachel street and sydney crescent i only wish they'd had a taste of the high street of my native town on a hot summer's evening between eight and nine o'clock that would cure them dull quotha haven't we the cabs and the tradesmen's carts and the great vans from king's cross station and coals always being delivered at one's next-door neighbours in my native town there wasn't a tradesman kept any conveyance above a wheelbarrow and as to cabs there was only one dilapidated old fly in the place oh i should like the people who turn up their noses at bloomsbury to try wareham when the townspeople have gone to a cricket match in the castle meads and when the only thing alive in the high street is one solitary cat stalking upon the tops of the houses dull indeed why on such a summer evening as i'm thinking of i've heard a man yawn three doors off and i'm sure a hearty sneeze would have startled the whole town mr smythe had taken to himself a pretty country-bred young wife the orphan niece of his old friend charles raymond with whom he lived in perfect harmony and who never read a line of his novels this was a point upon which the novelist insisted if you read my books you'll make suggestions and if you make suggestions i shall hate you and the better your suggestions are the more i shall hate you said sigismund nor do i care about your knowing the depths of infamy which the human mind for an adequate consideration can fathom the critics inform me that my fictions are demoralizing as a writer and a rate-payer i believe in my fictions but as a husband i defer to the critics and forbid my wife to read my novels sigismund's house was comfortably furnished and in no habitation within sound of the bells of st pancras were to be seen so many knick-knacks such quaint old black oak bookcases and cabinets such wonderful morsels of majolica and palissy such lilliputian silver tea services and watering pots and coal scuttles such marvels in the art of photography such delicious bookbinding in white vellum and many-coloured calf as in the dwelling of the romancer mr smythe possessed that love of colour and brightness that childlike yearning for prettiness which seems the attribute of most men who live by the cultivation of their fancy to keep these household gods in order was mrs smythe's chief occupation and delight and to her mind the little inner room lined with books and furnished with a wonderful office-table on which there were inexhaustible bundles of quill-pens 
and innumerable reams of smooth shining foreign note-paper was the most sacred chamber ever tenanted by mortal man for in this apartment did the industrious sigismund compose his romances beguiled by the yelping and howling of his favourite dog who inhabited an open stone vault below the novelist's windows of all which the boldest of house-agents faltered in designating a back garden perhaps there was no pleasanter house with a mile radius of russell square than the modest dwelling inhabited by mr and mrs smythe here when the moderator lamp was lighted and the curtains drawn some of the brightest luminaries of modern literature assembled round the hospitable hearth here were always to be found dry sherry and unlimited soda-water the palest brandy and the most genuine seltzer and vichy here little wicker covered bottles of liqueur and cherry cordials that had come straight from copenhagen by convoy of friendly hands were found lurking in corners of sideboards here better things were said than ever found their way to the compositor here the mighty chief of the bond street blagueur laid aside the murderous pen of the critic and expanded in genial friendship that delicious friendship of the coterie which is another name for enmity to all the rest of the world and here poor philip foley came to seek consolation or at least friendly listeners into whose ears he could pour the unsuccessful man's bitter railing when the british institution and the academy had been unanimous in rejecting his pictures and when the sunday evenings at the fountains had been particularly dispiriting of late mr foley had abandoned himself to a sullen despair the outward and visible tokens whereof were to be observed in the length of his hair and the carelessness of his attire he had taken too immoderate tobacco and laughed a strident laugh at the caustic witticisms of the bond street chief he had grown fitful in his habits and would sometimes drink himself into an intellectual frenzy with innumerable tumblers of brandy and seltzer while on other occasions he would sit apart glowering moodily on the company and refusing to taste anything stronger than water sigismund was very good to this stricken dear sometimes when philip had taken a homely dinner with mr and mrs smythe and when the novelist had been working hard all day the two young men paced the streets and squares of the bloomsbury district together in gloaming and gaslight and discoursed with brotherly confidence and freedom i tell you she isn't worth the howling you make about her le jeu ne vaut pas the what's-its-name said the practical sigismund what is she but a little fair-haired chit with dark eyebrows and big grey eyes and the insolent turned-up nose of a palais royal soubrette what is she but a mercenary little adventuress yes though she lives under her father's roof and shelters her innocence under the wing of a chaperon when she ventures abroad the woman who angles for a rich husband is no better than an adventuress whatever and whoever she may be and you let yourself run to seed and neglect your work and take to cynical declamation against things in general when you have good reason to be thankful for a blessed escape from misery do you think such a wife as william crawford's daughter could fail to make you wretched why she would spend your annual earnings on her gloves and the day that brought you back your unhung pictures from the academy would in all probability bring you a county court summons from your wife's milliner no no phil the lovely florence would have been no wife for you and she has shown herself wise in her generation you want a dear homely little creature say an orphan there's an extraordinary advantage in marrying an orphan a poor desolate young thing who has spent her girlhood as half-boarder or governor's pupil 
in a cheap boarding-school and who will think islington a paradise and esteem herself fortunate if she gets a new gown once a year and a clean bonnet cap at christmas and easter that's the only kind of wife for a rising man the dear good uncomplaining helpmate who will devote all the strength of her intellect to make both ends meet and will while sitting by your side in the parlour have an instinctive consciousness that the maid of all work is burning a tallow candle to waste in the back kitchen the model housewife of the dutch painters who goes down to her kitchen with a candle in the dead of night to prevent waste and riot you want a dear little girl with a genius for mending and contriving who will sit by your fireside darning your socks and singing whopping old stairs or the last rose of summer while you work at your easel and who will believe in you in spite of the world as the greatest genius that ever handled a brush in point of fact you want such a wife as my wife exclaimed sigismund triumphantly and as for florence crawford let her make merry or go hang herself as the bard observes good gracious me cried the romancer suddenly bursting into song should i wasting in despair die because a woman's fair by which of course i mean shall you he added in explanation besides haven't you your art to fall back upon if life goes wrong with you can't you take it out in violent reds and yellows as i take it out in murder and villainy when the critics fall foul of me i buy an extra ream of paper and a gallon of ink and go at my work with a will all the world lies before you dear old phil and the day may come when mrs lobier will be obliged to expend her shilling for a peep at your great picture reigning in solitary glory in some western gallery which isn't by any means a new dodge by the by for didn't the athenians pay an entrance fee for seeing the helen which zeuxis painted for their city thus consoled by the voice of friendship mr foley only grew more bitter but he took his friend's advice nevertheless expended his last ten-pound note in the purchase of a new easel and set up a monster canvas he was almost like poor hayden who in the piteous record of his wasted life declares that without a new large picture to lean upon he felt as if deserted by the world in all the course of this acquaintance with william crawford's fascinating daughter the young painter had made no direct avowal of his passion he loved her he had told her so indirectly a thousand times and he knew that she was conscious of his devotion for some time after hearing florence crawford's engagement discussed as an established fact mr foley kept aloof from the sunday evening gatherings at the fountains ah how he hated the dreary sabbath twilights after he had forsworn the delight of flo's society the wind and dust upon the islington highways the smartly dressed church-goers decorously moving homewards the smarter servant-maids hurrying away from hot little chapels where they had been enduring semi-suffocation in the glare of the gas those bright windy spring evenings were terrible to the struggling painter the decorous islingtonians stared at him wonderingly as he passed them by with his haggard face and streaming hair his meerschaum pipe and paint-stained coat he lit his pipe when he was clear of the crowd and with that faithful companion walked the suburban highways till midnight on such evenings the atmosphere of his painting-room stifled him the prim little sitting-room in which his landlord's family kept their sabbath state was odious to him i feel as if i couldn't breathe on those wretched sunday nights said philip to his faithful sigismund it is all very well while i can see to paint for i have grown a heathen since since she threw me over and i stick to my easel on sundays as well as weekdays but when the light goes my pluck goes with it i light my pipe but the tobacco chokes me i fold my arms upon the window-sill and try to think out some difficulty in the composition of my picture but it's no use i find myself thinking of her and wondering whether she is arraying herself in one of those gauzy white muslins with floating turquoise-coloured ribbons in which she looks the incarnation of freshness and innocence and then i light my lamp and open my box of water-colours and make a little sketch of her in the cloudy muslin and the sky-blue ribbons with sunshine upon her hair 
and sunshine upon her dress and the tenderest shadows hovering about and around her ah sigismund if, if you are ever desperately in love thank providence that you can't paint that's a fatal power to conjure out of a few paltry pigments the beloved face and all its dangerous beauty instinct with looks of love that never will illumine it for you to be forever calling into life and brightness the same lovely shadow and to know that it is only a beautiful phantasm to kiss the lips that are nothing but a patch of colour wet from your own brush to pour upon eyes that owe their soul light to artful touches of the pencil ah dear friend that way madness lies if st anthony had been a, as good a draughtsman as william crawford he wouldn't have been saint anthony for he could never have rid himself of the sirens when i have finished my sketch and have admired it and have got into a passion with it and have torn it into a hundred fragments i put on my hat and go out but even out of doors the atmosphere seems close and stifling and i can scarcely breathe till i get beyond holloway to the crown of highgate hill and then i stand on the bridge and look down upon london and think what a vast babylon it is and how many girls there are within its boundaries ready like florence crawford to sell themselves to the highest bidder slaves who only lack the badge of slavery i should go to switzerland in the autumn sigismund and paint from nature and try if i can't walk down my disappointments amongst the mountains as the time when miss crawford was likely to become mrs lobier drew nearer poor philip found his sabbath evenings more difficult of endurance that passionate yearning to see the adored object once more for the last last time to which all despairing lovers are liable took complete possession of the young painter for three consecutive sundays he fought against the temptation calling up his pride to assist him in the struggle but pride is very weak when bidden to do battle with love on the third occasion mr foley snatched up his hat hurried to a barber in a poor neighbourhood in which a barber's business was at its best on a sunday and sacrificed the luxuriance of his hair and beard to the man's inartistic scissors then after a walk in which he fought the tempter for the last time changing his mind every five minutes the painter went back to his lodgings and made a careful toilet there was a feverish kind of pleasure in what he was doing the desperate sense of delight which a despairing wretch is apt to feel when his woes have come to a climax and he is about to snatch the one chance of a fleeting joy that remains to him amidst his misery it was a balmy evening in may and the stars were shining in a tender blue sky when philip descended from the heights of islington he had sold no picture for the last six months and had exhausted the quarterly instalments of his modest income so he was fain to make his way on foot along the interminable new road and across the park to kensington he brushed the dust from his boots with his cambric handkerchief as he stood before mr crawford's gates and while doing so he had the pleasure of beholding the arrival of a pair of high stepping cobs and the smallest of miniature brooms furnished with the biggest and most voraciously flaming of lamps whose demoniac glare might have been easily dispensed with under the silvery spring starlight a contemptuous groom with a tight waist descended from the box of this vehicle and opened the door with a bang thereby releasing mr lobier who emerged something after the fashion of a badly fitting jack-in-the-box and who looked a great deal too big and clumsy for his broom the two men looked at each other as they passed through the gateway together pretending not to know each other and with an unquenchable hatred visible in the faces which they fondly imagined expressed nothing but a contemptuous indifference the rich man was free of the place and contrived to push his way to the drawing-room before philip and the young painter following close upon his heels had the opportunity of beholding miss crawford's coquettishly disdainful welcome of her affianced suitor poor philip saw her face grow pale as she looked across her lover's shoulder and recognized her old admirer but the colour came back to the delicate cheeks very quickly and she gave philip her hand with her airiest manner where have you been hiding yourself all the season mr foley she exclaimed we never see you now i hope you are devoting yourself to some great picture that is to astonish us all do tell me what you have been doing in all these ages 
miss crawford drew her airy dress away from one side of the capacious triangular ottoman which had been almost hidden under her voluminous draperies and philip seated himself in the vacant place yes there are decidedly some joys left even for the desperate man and philip experienced a keen sense of delight in defying mr lobier that gentleman stood beside his betrothed looking down upon her with an expression which might have in some degree justified the dismal forebodings of the people who foresaw only melancholy results from miss crawford's brilliant match but flo was not a person to be alarmed by the scowls of a jealous swain scowl he never so savagely she looked up at mr lobier with her sweetest smile and murmured gently surely thomas you know mr foley you must have met him here again and again the two men uttered unintelligible growls without looking at each other and florence continued her conversation with her unhappy admirer i hope you have been working very hard she said and painting from nature papa is always talking about the necessity of painting from nature have you been abroad or in scotland or wales pray let us hear what you have been doing very little so far miss crawford answered the landscape painter gravely but i am beginning to work in savage earnest men must work and women must weep i think that's what mr kingsley says heaven knows the men work hard enough nowadays but i fancy the race of women who weep has passed away miss crawford looked at her victim with the most charming expression of bewilderment and then after a brief pause she said sweetly i looked for something of yours at the british institution and the academy and was so disappointed to find nothing how did it happen my pictures were rejected it is my destiny to be rejected said philip with tragical intensity mr lobier at this moment gave utterance to a suppressed growl and might possibly have testified his indignation by some overt act of discourtesy towards philip if a little deputation had not approached the ottoman to entreat a song from miss crawford that young lady rising promptly to comply with the desire of her friends left her two lovers scowling at each other a young german of a musical turn of mind conducted flo to the piano and made himself busy in arranging the music and placing the candles mr lobier glaring at this gentleman and addressing philip foley under cover of this gentleman gave utterance to his sentiments i should have thought when a fellow was engaged to be married to a girl other fellows would have sense enough to know that the girl doesn't want their attention said the amiable thomas and then he stalked to the piano and stood behind his liege lady staring moodily at the parting of her hair as she played and sang mr lobier was not an enthusiast in the musical art nor indeed in the pictorial nor in any art which demands the possession of refined taste in the man who loves it philip held himself aloof from the group around the piano he heard flo's clear soprano voice ring out the airiest of ballads all about switzerland and chamois bounding free in mountain maids who sing tra la 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 from morn till dewy eve he heard her and fancied that such silvery notes could only belong to a singer unencumbered with anything in the way of a heart she could never sing like that if she had a spark of real feeling he thought how charming she was just now how sweetly she smiled at me how graciously she invited me to sit by her side and yet she has no more consciousness of my suffering than if she were a mermaid she is going to marry a rich man and she is so pleased with her good fortune that she is ready to be amiable to all the world before pity or compunction or womanly tenderness bah she does not know what such things mean the young painter turned his back upon the crowd the fashionable people who came to the fountains because they wanted to see what william crawford was like and the artist and professional people who came because they liked him poor philip turned his back upon society and went into a little inner room where there were stands of engravings and photographs and where flirtations were often carried on pleasantly under cover of art the little room happened to be empty just now and philip threw himself into a chair by the open window and abandoned himself to melancholy meditation mr crawford's garden looked very pretty in the starlight 
there were trees that had been growing there for centuries a noble old cedar which had sheltered the powdered bow and bell of the hanoverian dynasty under which harley or bolingbroke may have paced with meditative steps a tree that had flourished in the days of the court suburbs grandest glory and which flourished still for the delight of william crawford the painter who had given something like a guinea an inch for his old-fashioned garden philip had been sitting alone for some time he had been so long undisturbed that he had forgotten the nature of the place he was in and the meaning of that gentle buzzing and humming of voices in the adjoining apartment so profound were the young man's meditations that the sound of footsteps close behind him did not break the spell of his reverie it was only when a friendly hand was laid upon his shoulder that he looked up and saw his host standing by his side florence told me you were here but i couldn't find you till this moment said the great painter giving his cordial hand to the moody struggler what have you been doing with yourself all these months i wanted your help for the background of my jupiter but perhaps you are growing too big a man to paint backgrounds not too big a man mr crawford but too proud a man i think the unsuccessful men are always the proudest failure is like poverty it sets a man against his fortunate fellow-creatures i've been painting seven years and though i've worked fitfully i've not been idle if i don't do anything to make my name known amongst painters in the next three years i'll make a bonfire of my easel and all the rubbish of my studio and take to my father's trade what was that he was a lieutenant in the eighty-second foot and died of cholera on a forced march in the hottest month of the east indian summer there was a fuss made at the home office about that march and it turned out to have been one of those official blunders by which lives are so often wasted i dare say my father had rather a hard time of it altogether in his brief military career but his life wasn't all disappointment and failure he didn't know what it was to give his heart and soul to the work he loved to think of it by day and to dream of it by night until he woke from his bright dreams to find it all so much wasted labour he never knew that no philip answered william crawford gravely but i have known that and you know as well as i do that i have gone through the struggles and endured the disappointments that seem so hard to you now do you remember that mystical story of bulwer lytton's in which the student who would fain have made himself master of a mighty science was arrested at the outset by a hideous spectre that haunted the threshold of the shadowy temple at the portal of every temple you will meet the same forbidding spirit i have faced the dweller on the threshold philip and have wrestled with and vanquished him for me he has borne the shape of toil and poverty failure and humiliation he has dressed himself in the clothes of the hanging committee and has rejected my pictures he has made himself an art critic and has demolished me in a malevolent criticism in every form i have encountered him and i have mastered him only because i loved my art better than i loved myself and worshipped my art as something apart from myself there was some method in poor hayden's madness when he said in me the solitary sublimity of high art is not gone with an execution in his house and a cook dunning him for her wages the poor enthusiast was able to rejoice that there was one person left in the world to paint big classic unsaleable pictures i believe that poor fellow was a real artist there are men who paint great pictures who are not true artists and there are true artists who never paint great pictures your ideal artist is above envy and above despair hayden committed suicide because he couldn't pay his butcher and baker not because his big canvases were unsuccessful he would have gone on painting and hoping against hope if he could have afforded to live it was the sordid everyday necessity that vanquished him you will never be a great painter fully while you think of your own disappointments your own failures you must learn to merge your identity into the mighty abstraction if they refuse your picture at the academy to-day go home and begin a better to-morrow and before the month is out you will rejoice that your rejected canvas was unhung the story of lot's wife has a moral for painters never look back what are the failures of the past and the present 
a little wasted canvas a few tubes of colour more or less and it is across the failures of the present that brave men march to the triumphs of the future what hot-headed fellows the young men of the present day are i was five-and-thirty before i got a decent price for a picture and here is a lad of twenty-seven talking of going out to india to die because he is not acknowledged as the new turner william crawford had been the kindly friend and adviser of many young painters but it was not often that he spoke as earnestly as he had spoken to philip foley to-night the young man grasped his counsellor's hand with feverish ardour you are right he said i am a weak egotistical fool and it is of myself i am always thinking and not of my art a painter ought to divorce himself from the common weaknesses and to wean himself from the common pleasures of mankind and yet rubens was happy with his beautiful young wives and at his home as well as his painting-room i gathered some ivy-leaves in his garden last autumn and standing in the little pavilion where he used to sit sketching on summer mornings i thought what a blessed existence it must have been the sweet home life in that quaint old city of antwerp but it is not in every man to be rubens nor is it in every man to win the woman he loves and you are right mr crawford the painter who wants to be great must forget himself and his own troubles i dare say there were family jars even in the antwerp household and that glorious peter paul has gone to his work with a sore heart on some of those bright summer mornings there was a pause during which both men stood looking out at the starlit garden thinking of the women they loved mrs champernown had promised to look in at the fountains on that special sunday evening and had not done so it was like her to delude me by a promise on purpose to disappoint me by breaking it thought mr crawford bitterly come foley he said at last let's hear what you have been doing i hope you are working honestly i'm working honestly just now but i have wasted more of my life lately than i can afford to waste and i have only just awakened to the sense of my folly then you are lucky answered william crawford the man who awakes to a sense of his folly at twenty-seven is a happy fellow there are some of us who are fools for the best part of our lives but answer my question plainly what are you doing now mountain scenery and evening storm and you paint your mountain storm at islington with no better light than you get across london chimney-pots that is not the way collins painted you must go straight to nature my dear boy and paint your storm amongst the mountains a man whose pictures won't sell and who has only a hundred a year to fall back upon can't afford to go to nature i did think of spending the summer on the yorkshire coast roughing it among fishermen and coastguardsmen but i have outrun the constable and must stop in my islington lodging and paint pot boilers i can't afford to travel this year yes you can philip if i lend you a couple of hundred pounds you mr crawford who can better afford to do so than i who know your power to do great things in the future however on reflection i won't lend you the money borrowed money is supposed to exercise a demoralizing influence on the artistic mind i'll give you a commission and pay you in advance there's a little bit of scenery on the danube that i fell in love with a few years ago i'll find you the description of the spot in murray and i'll write you a cheque for the two hundred before you leave the house to-night spend your summer and autumn on the rhine and danube and bring me back my pet spot on a small canvas but but this is too generous stammered the landscape painter there's not a spark of generosity involved in that transaction if i were a manchester man you would take my commission without thanks or parley but since you insist upon treating the matter as a favour i will attach a condition to my offer and that is that you leave england at once these long may days are too good to waste in lodgings at islington i think i know why you do me this great kindness said philip first and foremost because i believe in your genius secondly because you don't wish me to come to this house just now i understand the delicacy of your kindness i appreciate your goodness and-and you accept my commission as heartily as it is given i shall start for rotterdam by the next steamer and when i come back you will bring home a picture which the academy will not reject 
i may be on the hanging committee myself next year in which case i promise you your landscape shall not be skied be sure there's human interest in your picture by the by you paint the figure better than any landscape painter i know and mind you make good use of your power that barefooted girl with the pitcher would not have crossed the brook so off if your crack landscape painters didn't know the value of human interest let us have something fresher and stronger than the barefooted girl for trafalgar square next may there was a walnut wood davenport in the room before which the painter seated himself he took a cheque-book from one of the drawers and wrote his cheque while he talked to philip if you take that to my bankers they'll give you circular notes he said and now good-night and good-bye start by the next boat work your hardest and look forward to next may i mean you to be a great man for the second time philip grasped the great painter's hand and that hearty pressure of palm to palm was the only expression which he gave to his gratitude nor did william crawford give him any opportunity for grateful protestations before the young man had put the cheque into his pocket his benefactor had returned to the drawing-room where his guests were perpetually being surprised and delighted and unspeakably obliged by instrumental and vocal performances during the progress of which they had appeared agreeably occupied by animated conversation after putting the painter's cheque into his pocket philip went out into the garden and paced slowly up and down a broad gravel walk that led away from the house and was overshadowed by trellis-work and creeping plants he wanted to linger just for a few minutes within the precincts of his paradise before he turned his back upon it for ever when i come back here she will be married to that cub and the mistress of some fine brand-new house in south kensington or tyburnia and i can remember her walking by my side in this shaded alley looking up in my face with grave earnest eyes and pretending to be interested in my art as if she cared for art and for anything upon this earth except fine dresses and diamonds and a three hundred guinea barouche in which to display herself when she drives in the park if i painted a good picture and made a success would she be sorry then i wonder after two or three rapid turns up and down this dark alley where the sound of voices and music came to him through the open windows of mr crawford's drawing-room philip went back to the house and made his way through the crowded apartment he would have left the fountains without seeing florence but that young lady happened to be standing in his way to the door she looked at him with a bright surprised face why mr foley where have you been hiding yourself for this last half-hour you only appear to make yourself invisible baron meifenheim has been singing the most enchanting little german ballad and i so much wished you to hear it i know you like that kind of music i like it so well that i am going up the danube on purpose to hear it answered philip bravely good-night miss crawford good-night and good-bye he laid a solemn emphasis on the last two syllables and suffered the little hand he had taken to fall suddenly from his loose grasp flo had been an accomplished coquette from the date of her thirteenth birthday and was accustomed to heart-rending farewells and yet she felt just one little pang as those solemn syllables fell upon her ear it would have been so much more pleasant if the landscape painter had waited to witness her triumphs and to be excruciated by her fascinations when she had entered the lists of bewitching matrons as mrs thomas lavier the steamer left st catherine's dock for rotterdam at noon on the following day and on monday night philip foley sat on the raised deck of the vessel smoking a cigar and looking dreamily down at the phosphoric light upon the waves dashing past him with an eager palpitating motion as if or so it seemed to philip each silvery wavelet had been hurrying madly towards the english shore to kiss the feet of florence crawford there's not a boat goes by us but seems to my mind to be sailing towards her while i am going away thought the despondent lover he was sorry that he had accepted the painter's kindness he was sorry that he had pledged himself to become an exile from the land in which he had enjoyed the privilege of making himself supremely miserable for love of florence crawford End of chapter seventeen